Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end the DNA Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Now, Usually I say I'll introduce our guest, but I also have a very special guest who's my new host, co-host. I don't know what you want to describe it as, but somebody that's going to be able to elevate the show and uh, looks better than than what I do on the the show if you're looking at uh, us on video. So Miss Kimberly Dillon, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I, I'll take I'll take that intro. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. So now I'll introduce uh, our guest, Dr. Kent Crowley. Um, there's such a long background on you. Uh, I know that you are the inventor, and if I'm wrong, just uh, tell me I'm wrong, of uh, choking. We'll talk about that. But I was reading so many different things on you. And I thought if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go and read your whole background, that's gonna be half the show. So what I figured maybe we would do is have you sort of introduce yourself, whatever you think is m- most relevant to the audience, and then we'll kind of go into uh, questions. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Lynn. Pleasure and congratulations, Kimberly. And again, you have such a beautiful smile. Um, oh, thank you, thank you, Kat. I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, you were talking to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm a. I got my doctor of pharmacy. My background, I'm actually sitting in my friend's hotel in Las Vegas uh, today. But uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, I I love Zoom. Uh, Before, I was terrified of this, you know, virtual stuff. Uh, Just like I was, you know, I, I had to be, you know, forced to get an email address back when we had to start doing that kind of communication. So. I found this to be a hugely valuable stress-reducing tool of communication. And, and so uh, I um, have that background because that's where I went to school. I got my doctor of pharmacy at UCSF. Um, 
It clearly was not the pathway that I originally planned. I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau II. So um, when I got out of uh, high school, I went into junior college, not much money. My mom hadn't finished high school and my grandfather, which um, was my father figure, uh, mostly growing up, hadn't finished fifth grade, but he had risen to one of the top high pressure pipe welders by working across the country from from uh, Oklahoma over to California and had a business for 40 years in, in Montebello, Montebello Welding, had a radio gospel station and a gospel quartet. So I really have a, I, I wanted to be a, you know, a environmentalist and a, and a guy that dove and took pictures. And, you know, I had a pretty good eye for pictures and I uh, started diving when I was 15 uh, in Orange Coast College, where I started that process to become an oceanographer or some, you know, variation of that. Um, when I was, I, I got my dive, uh, you know, instructor cert and spent a lot of time, uh, you know, diving. And by the time it was ready to go into, um, choosing my profession, I went up to Scripps or down to Scripps and up to Humboldt. And I just couldn't get into, uh, you know, what oceanography mostly was, you know, um, a lot of dirty work, uh, core sampling, checking mollusk counts and back bays that are filthy. And, and so I, I did a battery of tests and ended up, uh, you know, marking very high as a dentist or a pharmacist. And I really didn't have any interest in sticking my hands into somebody's mouth. That was pretty naive. So I chose a pharmacist as a clinical pharmacist and chose my school, which UCSF uh, still today since 1965 is recognized as the top school of pharmacy, clinical pharmacy in the country. Right. So that's where I went. And Are you still diving by any chance? Yeah, I'm, they graduated me. I'm 66. So now I'm a now we master diver. Wow. Um, and I have, you know, I, I, you know, I do a lot of free dive. Unfortunately, our uh, our climate changes, which unfortunately so many ignore mm. or want to claim doesn't exist, has really destroyed or decimated the abalone population um, north of San Francisco. One of the last strongholds of where you it's not commercially viable anymore, uh, but you know. You can free dive or snorkel for abalone, um, but that has been closed for five years, and it doesn't look like it may ever open again. The first time they're going to reassess it is 2022. So um, I've been actively doing something in the water my whole life. Yeah, this, this um, isn't what I wanted to really focus on, but I'm just curious for myself. <clears throat> so the first time I went diving was in Mexico. I had really like a five minute lesson. Guys, like, <laughs> go down. And I was so skinny that they need to put weight around, like weights around me so I can actually uh, like go down. But the pressure was so, so intense. And they're like, you know, this means good, this means bad. And I want to go up. And then you go with a buddy. 
Actually, the assembly. This means oh, this pay. Well, in this Mexico, how to go up to the. Oh store. yeah, that's it. That's right. It's up down. You're right. Absolutely. Uh, so it was many years ago, but they they send me with a buddy. Uh, they're, you're supposed to go with somebody else, and the guy that I went with, it was his first dive too. So as we're going down, like he's going like this. Uh, if uh, you audience that can't uh, see me, he's putting his hands on his head, and I can see that he's you know suffering with pressure. So he's like up. I'm going up. So he left me and I got stuck and I'm by myself. And I, and I was, it was, it was very, and it was my first time and it was very difficult to get the rhythm of breathing and, and the pressure and all that stuff. And I finally got it. But anyway, I ended up running low on air and I couldn't find the boat and they got me back on the boat. So that was a very traumatic experience for me. I know that's not the way you're supposed to learn how to dive. And it was my own fault to do it in Mexico. But do you have any like sort of, uh, pointers about this this pressure uh, that like the pressure in your head and your, your ears. For most people, you can equalize your pressure just like going up in an airplane or going up in the mountains. Or uh, uh, you know, you have to equalize your pressure, and that requires you station tubes to be um, patent. And if they're blocked from a sinus infection or or something else, uh, um, then uh, it makes it much harder. Uh, when you go down too quickly and you're not equalizing as you're going down, um, that makes it harder for you to equalize that uh, uh, pressure in your ears, in your ear. And, and so that's probably what happened with you. You don't want to dive alone and you certainly don't want to be diving with the two first timers uh, with, you know, with no experience and no one holding your hand as a dive master. So yeah. that was a really bad experience. And fortunately you didn't die. Yeah, no, it was, it was close. All right. So I have, fortunately, so I have, a, I have another question for you uh, on diving and then we'll move on to this. I, it just kind of popped in my head. Do you have to know how to swim in order to dive? That's a good idea. I mean, (laughs) not for myself, for a friend. (laughs) As a dive, you know, master, well, as just getting an advanced NAWI certification, we learned um, search and rescue, uh, grid diving. Uh, We went down uh, Scripps Trench, dropped down to 165, and then took our trip, you know, slowly up over a five minute period so we didn't have to decompress. Um, It's, there's it there's just so many different especially in in the pacific you get so many different wonderful environments kelp diving so much different than than uh coral or reef diving um i haven't gotten to do a lot of around the world you know awesome spots like the great barrier reef or micronesia or some of those spots that that some of my friends have said are just uh, life-changing experiences. Um, but I've, I've got this, you know, I'm probably pushing, you know, seven, 800 hours bottom time, which is, wow. you know, outside of a professional, that's a pretty big number. Yeah, it definitely is. And free diving is a whole other thing. Yeah, I can uh, yeah. Yeah. do that because, uh, <laughs> Kenzo, what you don't know is that I, uh, I do not know how to swim. <laughs> That's why I was asking the question. I said for a friend, but I didn't want to. I don't want to 
out anybody without them. Expressing. Well, it totally does not how to swim. List. It is on yeah. my bucket list. <laughs> well, we is you know going through the process. You know, we had to swim. We, we used to uh, Orange Coast College is is in uh, Costa Mesa, and so we would do a lot of. And our dive instructor, um, Dean Westgard, I still remember him, such a fabulous guy. Um, he lived in Laguna and his home would look out at the, you know, out over, you know, Crest Street, you know, down in that area. So we could see when it's flat, when you had huge visibility. And so, uh, you know, we would get to do some really unique stuff, but we had to tread water for, three hours. We have, I mean, we had to do some serious stuff in order to uh, meet some of the credentialing that in that experience that you need in order to make sure that you can uh, lead a, lead a group and, and take care of them. Right. So yeah, you have to be an, an expert swimmer. Yeah. So <laughs> some, something to aspire to Kimberly. Thank you. I'm going to work on swimming in my pool. For a there you go. That's a, a start. Start right. <laughs> lots and lots of laps, and do it underwater and on the top, on the surface. So, um, so well, going back to your right. background, pharmacy. You went went to pharmacy school, and then uh, uh, you decided right. to be so, a pharmacist. Yeah, I wanted to be a clinical pharmacist and change the world. Like you know, I I've always been trying to to uh to cut new new paths that haven't been uh cut mm -hmm. and uh did ivory tower medicine um went into the clinical pharmacy and acute care settings and then added uh retail and and research spent 13 years at uci uh in the as a pharmacist specialist in the department of pediatrics division of child development where we did a lot of work with kids with ADHD and other comorbid conditions, published a lot of stuff, helped create um, some drugs like Concerta. I did some of the initial uh, preclinical work on kids with the TDC-19 project, where we uh, learned the different blood curves using methylphenidate in the treatment um, and looking at uh, cognitive performance and all those things. When we use a stimulant in an ADHD kid, it's typically, unlike a normal person, it makes them drowsy. Right. It can with over medication. And generally, to not suppress cognition, but, uh, but to um, control, uh, you know, the different behaviors that... Uh, an ADHD kid would have with hyperactivity, for instance, impulsive, can't sit in the chair, squirming around, uh, interrupting. Um, patients or parents and especially teachers want that kid quiet sitting there and uh, not necessarily greatly attentive. So um, we, would, we would do double-blind placebo-controlled trial medication uh, assessment so that we could get rid of the parent and teacher bias right. and evaluate the kid's cognitive performance and make sure that the dose was right for them at least twice a year. <clears throat> so there was a lot of things that I learned in that ivory tower practice, but believe me, 
it wasn't solving the problems. I kept, you know, this innate sense that I had was this isn't the, the, the solution. And I started learning about, you know, uh, food sensitivities and allergies and its impact on energy and cognitive performance and the microbiome, even though we didn't call it that back then, and stepped into functional medicine and continued, you know, I ran around in, in some of the hospitals when I was working in uh, critical care access hospitals in Northern California, you know, in the wine country and stuff. And mm-hmm. And uh, I was given probiotics, whether I brought them in and bought them myself to moms that were put on um, antibiotics before C-section or, or things like this, just to make sure that these babies that came out um, had a better chance of having a decent microbiome than, um, than the ones that didn't get to go through the birth canal, didn't get, you know, the the breastfeeding from the mom and didn't build up that unique um, set of bacteria that that is critically important for um, we share our genomics yeah. with our genetics with with bacteria and our genomic expression you know it's genetics plus environment right. equals our genomic expression yeah epigenetics right epigenetics. yeah so <clears throat> can I, you, you mentioned microbiome I'm just curious. Uh, do you feel that looking at individual microbiome and creating probiotics that are specific to those individuals or something that we should be looking at? Uh, or is it just one size fits all when it comes to uh, probiotic and prebiotics? Well, um, I'm not an ultra expert in some of that stuff. I generally use evidence-based and my practice of selecting probiotics has changed substantially over the years. Mm. Uh, now I'm using score-based probiotics mm. uh, through okay. my biome labs. I'm using a quantitative analysis using the biome FX test instead of the, uh, you know, like Genova's uh, GI FX yeah. test or CBSA, mm. what it used to be called. I've changed a lot of the ways that I make functional analysis in our functional practice that we have in Huntington Beach. Mm-hmm. We call it the palliative care corp and we've changed it because the palliative, just the word palliative scares people. Sure. So we, we changed it to the patient care corp. So we, you know, a lot of things we've learned, but um, functional medicine is ultimately what I rolled into learning not only for um, my patients, but my, my own self. I'm a chronic pain patient. I was, I was broadsided on a moped by a U.S. postal van in 1976. And because I was in such top physical shape, I trained, you know, in, in Sansu Kung Fu and Aikido. Um, you know, I, the only thing I could do was attack the van and roll away. Uh, I didn't break anything remarkably being hit at 20 miles an hour. Um, and, uh, but I spent 12 days in cervical and lumbar traction. And that is when I actually got exposed to opiates for pain control. And down the road, my, uh, OCD of workaholic turned into drug addict. 
just have you ever done a, uh, a DNA test to see if you have a genetic predisposition to opioid dependence? I've never, I've, I've, I've done 23andMe, wow. but I've never spent the time to look into it. Again, oh, we'll, we'll, do it. we'll do it for, if you're interested, you can take the 23andMe results that you have and I'll run yeah, it and the DNA test for you. I'm pretty sure it's there. I, yeah. I did some tests really early on before they changed some of the um, analyses that they were able to run. Um, so I'm not sure that that my test is the latest and greatest um, optics of my DNA, but it should be good. Are your DNA changed one? Uh, your D- yeah, your DNA can't, what, what, what uh, Ken's referring to is, 23andMe, for instance, they have different iterations of their tests. So yeah. different versions have different uh, SNP analysis. <clears throat> the earlier versions actually had a lot more coverage. The later versions have less coverage. And the reason why is because they took out a lot of the health conditions so they can go to the FDA with a brand new test that they got FDA approval for that's going to be a more diagnostic test that's going to be uh, you know clinically focused. So earlier versions had a lot more and they said, uh-uh, that's more in our FDA approved test, which we can charge more for and get reimbursement, et cetera. So if you have an earlier test, you're probably better off because it has a, more SNPs on it than the later tests. I did one in 2012 and then I did another one in 2015, I think. Something. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it for you. But you, I mean, like you probably know the most likely Obviously, because you you had some uh, some challenges with that, so most likely whatever it was, you know, was expressed epigenetically, as we just discussed. Absolutely. So when you were talking about, sorry to interrupt, about your journey to functional medicine. Can you, I'm interested to know what time period it was in which you switched into functional medicine, and okay. whether or not it was well received. Were you in the minority, what was the general um, environment? It's a kooky doctor. It's the one. Oh my God, he believes yeah. in something foo-foo, <laughs> Not that, re- not real medicine. It's that other medicine that we don't talk about. Traditional. <laughs> I'd like to call it Western because traditional really has thousands of years of experience Absolutely. in different, many different cultures. So, Western medicine is what we practice mainstream in the U.S. and many other places in the world, uh, which is fabulous for acute care. We can save people that never could be saved before. But when we get into chronic conditions, tradition or Western medicine fails miserably because it's built on a broken foundation of you need something wrong in order to get a J code, in order to get something that we can bill so that insurance will pay for it. So let's wait until you're in a unrecoverable or partially recoverable state so that we can then say, aha, it's like the GI doc that ignores the seven or eight years that a celiac sprue patient goes through hell while they're going through the IBS to IBD to, oh, gee, the gold standard is uh, let's do a biopsy. And if there's no villi on your 
you know, in your uh, GI tract, uh, then oh, voila, you fit the definition of celiac sprue, stop eating gluten or gluten-like products. That's not what we want to practice. We want to practice proactive medicine. Mm-hmm. And our, I can't go into a pharmacy and work today in a pharmacy because three-fourths of what we are dispensing is wrong. We are treating symptoms and treating the side effects caused by the drugs we're treating the symptoms with. We're not giving the body the tools that it needs in order to fix itself. We are a, whether you believe in God or not, we are a fabulous, you know, uh, package of machinery and physiology that, that without really serious snips, um, is, is capable of pretty much fixing everything wrong, especially if we have the space between our two ears working right. Yeah, for sure. So uh, just to kind of uh, ask Kimberly's question again, is that, was that in the 80s that you made that switch? Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, probably around, well, I, I graduated UCSF in 83. And then... Um, 93, 99, I went into compounding pharmacy. So part of my work from 86 to 99 was compounding at a university level. Um, uh, And, and so I, I got frustrated with, with, um, you know, with the, with the traditional pharmacy practices. I stepped into my own operations in 1995 was my first compounding pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, within a year and a half, I became a Demerol addict from self-treating my low back pain, which I had mm-hmm. damaged. And then I was working 20 hours a, a day and, you know, trying to, to build a business, which I did very well. But um, I sabotaged myself and ended up in a couple treatment centers and you know, lost the business, lost the license, got it back, long story back and forth. Um, but going into functional medicine um, in, in the pharmacy compounding arena, that is where we can personalize um, products that regular big pharma following GMP uh, manufacturing protocols um, uh, doesn't doesn't have the flexibility that a compounding pharmacist does, and really compounding is, is where the secundum artum art or the art of the practice of pharmacy was founded. I'm gonna play. I'm gonna raise my hand. Can you explain to me what a compounding pharmacy right pharmacy is versus writing? It's the pestle and mortar. You ever see like a. <laughs> guys in there and going like this and like this and they make their own drugs, right? <laughs> yeah, in the kitchen, you're using a mocajete. In, in the pharmacy, we're using, you know, a lot of technology. And it's, you know, in, in the, the, the classic mortar and pestle, you have a porcelain bowl and that porcelain bowl has a porous surface and you're using a pestle, which rubs that porcelain and against the porcelain surface, and it breaks down those the material that's in your bowl into more uniform, uh, uh, into uniform particle size, let's say. Mm-hmm. 
and and so it's it was used in mixing now there's a lot more technology that's used in very high tech stuff where we can nanoparticle size things now in the cannabis space i'm involved in doing that um uh you know i anyway personalize is what i'm getting so compounding farm i'm getting medicine that's specifically made for me it's it's personalized medicine that is trying to um, many times remove things that are problematic. You know, a lot of the pharmaceuticals today stick saccharin, artificial colors, um, for no reason other than that's what they've done for since the 1950s. And so they like them at uh, a products, uh, you know, uh, magnesium stearate um, that is not plant derived and uh, can can act like a biofilm and and there's just a lot of ingredients that aren't helpful to our physiology. Yeah, I see. And we can remove all of those and work with the actives, and we can even change the route of administration to optimize um, that therapy, whether it's hormonal therapy, it's pain management, it's it's anti-inflammatory, whatever it is. So compounding is the is 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 working with a physician and a patient, with a pharmacist in a in a working relationship to solve therapeutic problems. Got it. Thank you. So, so when you were uh, moving into the uh, compounding uh, pharmacy and looking at, uh, you know. Uh, I'll call it traditional medicine, since not Western medicine approach. Is that when you came up with the idea for a trochee, or is that did that come later? Well, I used trochees in that in that platform. Um, we delivered many things. I tried to get uh, a patent. Anyway, in 1995, I I was. Uh, engaged with some of the leaders in in the functional medicine movement like Jeffrey Bland, PhD, mm-hmm. Jonathan Wright, Ellen Gabby, uh, physicians that were using nutraceuticals in the unheard of way of treating disease. <laughs> can you believe you can use a phytonutrient and you can give it to the body and the body fixes the problem. Yeah. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> yeah. Big Pharma doesn't like that. Well, that's, that's what I was going to ask you, you know, because you're, you're a pharmacist by, by training, you're a doctor of pharmacy, and you have this background in pharmaceuticals, and then you sort of shifted. Do you take any of that? Like, you, you may have like a negative outlook, plus you have some personal challenges with the with pharmaceuticals uh, do you take that into account when now that you're looking at you know pa- patient protocols etc of how to maybe get people off of a pharmaceutical or do you combine the two is there a use for that to sort of work together and integrate uh, both of those everything is possible and to be able to have more tools in your toolbox to give um, all of those options to individuals uh, it is necessary because 
there's challenges on the financial side, there's challenges on the access side, there's challenges on the time side. And so you have to play around with all those variables and work with what your patient can, can afford, understand, or, or, or follow. You know, lifestyle medicine is ultimately what I've stepped into. But, you know, in, the, in 95, I started creating uh, products that I ultimately patented. I was the mm. first one in the world to patent topical ketamine for neuropathic pain. Mm. And I was saving people from, at that time, we called it reflex sympathetic dystrophy. It's now called chronic regional pain syndrome one and two. So RSD patients were killing themselves. They couldn't put on clothes. They couldn't tolerate touching their skin. Someone that had um, postherpetic neuralgia. So your zoster has gone away. There's no more lesions, but you have chronic pain there. I saw cases in the Domini Pain Clinic at you know, I, I worked with Dr. Payne and the palliative pain care at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, my patents went to uh, New Jersey, fortunately to a drug company that stole them from me, which apparently is pretty common in the inventor world. Um, but I got to work with, with Dr. Pasternick and, and that team and educate medical students through, you know, chief residents. Um, that pain is a complex combination of, of a number of different things. And when you look at pain as one bucket, you're missing a whole lot of stuff. And if you have a di diagnostic tool like topical ketamine, uh, with, with uh, my favorite was butambin, but, the, but the, because of injecting butambin, which is the butyl ester, butyl, uh, ester of, of uh, benzocaine, benzocaine is the ethyl ester of, of, of benzoic acid. Um, butambin, if you inject it into a joint, it can cause some histologic damage to tissue. But what was unique was it was hydrophobic and it was bactericidal. And so you could put ketamine and butambin on an open lesion that's not healing, get rid of the pain, and allow it to heal, which was which was a remarkable thing. Um, and so, uh, so that so I started, you know, with with that process of of patenting and then forging new ways to approach. But I was attacked by the California Board of Pharmacy for doing that. Um, yeah, seriously. So there's a lot of people that don't like free thinkers trying to come up with solutions that, uh, they just, it doesn't fit in their paradigm. I, I use trochies to use, uh, a, uh, opiate agonist antagonist, buprenorphine, which is used for, uh, in, in place of methadone. Um, plus or minus uh, naloxone uh, for um, for addiction, opiate addiction, and I put that into a trochee form, and then was able to to bring patients that were addicted to heroin off of heroin 
and then allow them to deal with their pain on something at a fraction of the commercial dose that kept them addicted. Right. That's the thing here, guys. Yeah. Big Pharma wants to keep the patient addicted onto something, <clears throat> whether it's methadone or whether it's buprenorphine. Yeah. And so again, the Board of Pharmacy attacked me over that. So there is things that are driven from higher up above that that is is always, you know, I've been pushing buttons my whole professional career. Yeah. What keeps you going? And then yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that just doesn't let me stop. <laughs> I yeah. think it's a commitment to do the right thing and just this innate creative um, self that I have that's driven to solve problems. You know, I'm a clinician at heart. Mm-hmm. I, sh- I shouldn't know the things that I come up with solutions to because I wasn't trained as a diagnostician. Mm-hmm. I was trained once, once you're given a diagnosis, how do you monitor it? How do you manage it? How do you treat it? How do you look for adverse events? How, what's your outcome? Those are the basic things a clinical pharmacist knows. For audience, what is a trochee? How would you describe it? Well, it's it's a pharmaceutical dosage form described in the USP, United States Pharmacopeia, and typically it is a um, it's it's a buckle delivery system buckle meaning between cheek and gum versus sublingual which is under tongue so it's placement in the mouth and depending on where you place things if you put something under your tongue you're going to generate the most saliva possible if you put something under your upper lip you're going to generate the least amount of saliva and if i want oromucosal absorption one of the routes of administration that we use that bypasses first pass metabolism. Anything that goes down the hatch and into our GI tract, all that blood flow goes through our liver first and gets metabolized. And if you're trying to minimize between patient variables where we're not worried about what's in the stomach, what the integrity of the GI tract is, a number, you know, what, what's their SNPs in their uh, cytochrome P450 system? Yeah, well, how are they metabolized? Uh, which is our phase one elimination. And, you know, we, we take things, we make them into a form that we can then conjugate them by glucuronidation or, or uh, you know, the other six or seven different pathways that are used for conjugation and elimination um, to get something out of our system. You want to minimize those between patient variables. You try and use something that doesn't go or utilize first pass metabolism. So I like to go that route. That's when I stepped into the cannabis space in 2013. I thought it was a a gateway drug. And again, just like the misinformation on bioidentical hormones that was propagated by our, our, our. criminally negligent um, media uh, and our government, um, we, 
we, you know, it, it was real easy to see. Well, let's see. You look in the physiology books and you see that progesterone, a bioidentical hormone, is important for males and females. But what you're taught, what the residents in, o, in, 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 in OB are taught is you have, a, you have a uterus or you don't have a uterus. You have ovaries or you don't have ovaries. And that's how you decide on what to treat. And what are you going to use? You're going to use a pharmaceutical product that's been patented. And it's called a progestin. Progestins do a great job of cleaning off that uterus. They don't do any of the other things that progesterone does. But when you talk to an OBGYN that is traditionally trained and indoctrinated by drug reps, they have forgotten that progesterone isn't the same as progestin. And they will use conjugated estrogens and medroxyprogesterone, both, you know, whether it's from a horse, you know, uh, pregnant mare's urine. Uh, or from a synthetic source, conjugated estrogens are not estrone, estradiol, and estriol. It's something that is hundreds of times more potent than bioidentical hormones. But is that would you would you, <clears throat> from an analogy standpoint, would you say that's similar to how we isolate? individual cannabinoid molecules and have those. Uh, so if we're doing a distillate or an isolated uh, molecule and, and uh, go through and have a, uh, a really higher dose than what's necessary of that uh, THC distillate, instead of consuming you know, the entire plant, whether it's a, a buckle or a sublingual delivery, instead of just isolating one of those molecules, is that uh, and, and increasing the dose, is that what, how you consider that an analogy to what you're describing on the progesterone side as well? It's more complex than that, but uh, in a simplistic way, progesterone impacts a whole lot of physiologic uh, pathways that right. have to do with our frontal, you know, our frontal cortex, our personality, our moods, uh, to our bone remodelization. So progesterone does a lot of things. It's the calming, balancing hormone to the attack hormone, which I think of as estrogen. Estrogen, right. So yeah, that makes sense. Right. So in, in, in stepping into the cannabinoid world, um, you know, I was asked to, to help, uh, you know, how I got into, into the cannabis world was uh, a PA in Las Vegas had a boyfriend, a retired Navy SEAL, the general, and his brother was a sous was a uh, sous was a, a sous chef at the top of the mark in San Francisco, and and he said, uh, this gal said, uh, can can you go help my my boyfriend's brother? You know, he's uh, up there making uh, cannabis products in, in San Francisco, Oakland area. And um, he's got some friends that have some kids with uh, cancer and intractable nausea and vomiting and 
doctors feeling poorly. And I know you can always come up with something and fix the problem. So mm-hmm. I said, not a freaking chance in hell. Ah! And so she said, but his brother will guarantee you that you will be paid and you will be protected. Mm-hmm. And so, and this guy's just traping around the world, taking care of, you know, high-end, you know, wealthy patients, you know, mm-hmm. go on a month cruise, go on this, you know, just do some fun stuff. So I said, all right, if it's for you and him, I'll go do it. So I went up there, met with Dr. Bob at CW Analytical, one of the, you know, one of the the, the guys that was really trying to do right stuff in that lab, actually, Dave, uh, Dave, I'll have to think of his last name, a PhD, which really ran the lab, but they were trying to um, to identify the the dose that was in whatever product that was being made, so that that uh, the the way that you would describe the cannabis product of this is really strong or this is really mild would actually be this has five milligrams of THC in the neutral form. This has 10 milligrams of CBD and two milligrams of THC, uh, you know, or this is a 50 50 mix of the acidic form of THC and uh, the neutral form of THC. And why that matters is the neutral form of THC is the one that hits the CB, central CB1 receptors that causes intoxication. Mm-hmm. And so especially if you're working with these wonderful chocolates that taste fabulous and they have 500 milligrams in a bar of THC in the neutral form, someone takes a chunk of that that's naive to cannabis. And then you get these wonderful stories of horrible, horrific experiences that scare them away from cannabis forever. This wonderful adaptogenic herb that when is used in the appropriate dosage form is also life-changing. So what, what changed your mind? Because you mentioned you were sort of, uh, you know, the Nancy Reagan, your brain on drugs. It's real simple. You just yeah. look at the data. It was out there. Right. You know, PubMed was hiding some of that data. So you would have to go to Google Scholar with the same words to search. And all of a sudden, a study would pop up where you didn't see it in PubMed. You want to talk about something there? Now that I have never been able to, to rectify. Yeah. Now, back in the early right. days. You, you, are you saying there may be a conspiracy? Uh, why I'm not going to say anything except that I was able to find things I wasn't able to on PubMed. So. I'll say it. <laughs> I'll be the guy that says it. I mean, so it's anyway it, within a within. A, so I saw Dr. Bob. I met with with uh, Sean Smith, and and I formed a business with Sean, and uh, that's where Trokey was born. Um, it was. Uh, it was a wonderful uh, learning experience. You know, I looked at the active material. At that time, it was coming uh, from uh, from light carbon extraction out of Mendocino using, you know, outdoor sun-raised organic uh, practiced uh, material. And, um, and I just, you know, delivered it, worked great. Uh, 
met with Ryan Hudson, one of the, you know, one of the, one of the prominent guys at that time in San Francisco that ran the apothecarium. And he said, Kent, you have something that we have never seen before. It's like, you know, we're riding around in horse and buggies and you brought in, uh, you've drove in, uh, you know, uh, holding, uh, showing us a Ferrari and we've never seen a, a car before. Yeah. So he said, you got to do something with it. But then his, his uh, brother-in-law or someone was, a, was a, one of those vulture bankers. So they tried to take 95% of the business. And so I, I said no, and then floundered around until I'm at the point today. <laughs> Have a patent, buckle delivery. Uh, and Trokey has got that IP surrounding it. and it's yep. uh, it's a product that you know has an onset of action that's objectively measurable in many people in under five minutes, mm. and it has a duration of action of four hours to eight hours, depending on the dose and the product that you're taking. And it's buckly delivered under the upper lip and gum, and it's continuing to go through more and more re- revisions to optimize its. Uh, tolerability or enjoyment uh, in taste, which has always been a challenge. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. It's with every formulation in cannabis, taste is always uh, a challenge to, you know, we get for some of our formulas. Um, You mentioned ketamine. Uh, I wanted to get your opinion and thoughts on psychotropics or psychedelics. What is your, or what are your thoughts on what's going on now? Uh, kind of showing two thumbs up for those of you who can't hear. Uh, and and is there a delivery method? So like ketamine, for instance, I, I know a lot of people are doing ketamine treatment. I am intramuscularly I, IV. Is there Infusions. one that you, yeah, well, yeah. Nutrient, right. Is there, is there one that you think is a better uh, one or does it depend on what it you're trying to on, address? It depends on the indication. It depends on the person. It depends, you know, there's, there's a number of variables, but uh, it's like the psychedelics. In fact, experts in that space um, believe that MDMA will be approved. And that's another drug that was vilified, again, with mis- horrible misinformation, um, where it's damaging your, like LSD, damaging your chromosomes. I never touched LSD because I was afraid of damaging my chromosomes because I wanted to have kids, of which I ended up having six with my wife going on 47 years now. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It was a question I had about family because I, uh, you, you really gave me some really good advice too on uh, family and marriage uh, at one point. So I, I you know, family... Family is super important and, you know, being able to keep that together, especially through the ups and downs. Even with my challenges, you know, being really bright and having OCD and, you know, it's a two-edged sword. And I've cut myself and everyone around me many times with that sword. Uh, But generally, if it's not self-destruction, it's always for a positive, helpful purpose to humanity. 
And that's why I have friends still. That's why I have a wife and kids. There's, there's a lot of reasons why people have, have uh, believed in me and stuck by me while I've wrestled with my demons. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? How are you doing? I am short of the, you know, the damage I've done to my body. Um, I'm feeling back at college level, high level, you know, fit performance. I'm Great. down to 142. That was my, uh, that was my diving, my best diving weight, you know, an eight pack. Um, you know, at 66, that's pretty good. It's great. That's great. <laughs> I think it, a lot of ages. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, Kat, so I, I have a few questions I ask all my guests. Uh, I don't know if Kimberly has anything else to ask before I go into my three questions. And uh, then we'll, uh, we'll let you go on your day. You have much more important things to do than this. And then Kimberly and I will stay on for a few more minutes. So, uh, Kimberly, uh, you said, I saw that you had a question, bro. Yeah, I was going to say one thing. I didn't, I was not, I didn't know who we were talking to today. So this has been such a pleasure. So thank you. And I do want to share that when I first went into a dispensary and bought a product, I bought a trophy for my mom. I bought a trophy. Oh, awesome. (laughs) Honey bear. And I sent it to my mom to pick. And she picked the trophy because she didn't think we should be in a honey bear because she's not a kid. That's <laughs> well, you know what? Like a grown-up product. And this was 2000, um, 15, 16? Where? What, what, what market area? La Cienega at okay. Med Health um, Dispensary on okay. La Cienega. So it was like a little orange square icon in a little um, bag. That's the one. Yep. The the old, the old square trochies. Yep. The 120s. (laughs) I think I still have some of those in my bag. I actually have a few just sitting there. I may test. I've, I've gone through some testing. I still am uh, every year. I'll run a test on 2017. Uh, trochies that I've got a, a you know, a, a number of still. So I'm, I'm, you know, we've done a, a stability study actually, uh, and we'll be doing um, publishable ones. The next two that we do uh, on the products that are going, trochies actually going into Australia, hopefully next month. So it will be our first international interface. Uh, we've tried and, COVID really put a, a, a curveball in our ability to, to work with Chiron and Project 2021 in the UK, yeah. which we were slated to get in there. But working with the Professional Compounding Centers of America on the bases that I use, I've, I've essentially put Troche into utilizing CGMP components. Now we're able to uh, get a API, an active pharmaceutical ingredient that is from hemp, that is CGMP. It's credentialed, organic, kosher. We got terpenes that are CGMP that I use sativa and indica blends from, two terpenes. 
and I use distillate or a distillate is what the API is. And so I can, I can control the variables mm-hmm. and my base is made by PCCA. So a, a proprietary base, again, CGMP. So mm-hmm. I can ship these components anywhere in the world and have them assembled yeah. as long as it's allowed. Right. So that's where Trokey is today. And it's and it's just um, it's getting ready for a major marketing campaign in um, on the eastern side of the country, and yeah. and hopefully we'll be very successful in this new formulation that we've come up with. Yeah, I think that's great. I, so I'm supposed to chair. I don't even know what that means. The Canapharma Conference, and one of the things that I'm supposed I was thinking of starting to talk about. Uh, we just went to the MJ BizCon. And I was walking around and I was like, there is no therapeutic or medical focus at all here. It's uh-huh. all about cultivation. It's all about, uh, you know, extraction. But what about all the people that are looking for the therapeutic aspects of the plant? There was nothing really there. And, you know, products like what you're uh, creating, in, you know, the work that we're doing at Endo, all these different things. This is there's a huge population that really needs these products and not about, you know, let's see. When, what we can do. The, the problem is, is recreation destroyed our California market of, me, of medical access. Government is desperately trying to uh, float their uh, incompetent fiscal management. Uh, by raping businesses barely surviving, uh, in, in, for instance, in California, yeah. with this horrible, uh, you know, excise tax burden, which all gets uh, driven right down to the patient, the uh, California resident that needed the medicine to start with. You got to pay. You can't even give something to somebody. Yep. without still having to pay the government taxes. They prevented hemp-based CBD products in the dispensary market. Clearly, a pharmaceutical, medicinally-oriented product like Troche is doesn't fit well into the 21-year-old bud tender that's practicing medicine without a license that only knows what the best and latest and greatest vape or uh, concentrate, or uh, cultivar is, or the gummy. Yeah, I guarantee you, about- they, they will not know the word cultivar. I guarantee you 90% of them won't even know what you mean. Strains are for bacteria and yeast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, Ethan Russo said one time, I remember he was talking, he's like, why do we keep calling this a strain when the strain refers to a virus? I never understood that in bacteria. This is a healing therapeutic plant, and you're calling it something that it's not. So anyway, California did a fabulous job of destroying the platform of the collective and cooperative in 2017, and they dragged it. We were able to survive until, I think, 2018. Is that when it fully closed down? Or am I a year ahead? Can't keep track of that. But they essentially destroyed that that, platform. platform and drove costs out, you know, out of reach for many patients that can barely afford anything. And, you know, in our clinic, we've 
treated over 10,000 patients in, in Huntington Beach. Uh, back then, we were a collective. We were able to um, work with the Dr. Ari Holtzman. He would register the patient. We would work with guidance there, even though they're in California and in many other less intelligent states, they made sure that there was a disconnect between physician and patient because of the federal, um, you know, uh, uh, more, you know, the federal position of marijuana, a regulatory term defining the amount of THC in the plant versus hemp, you know, that that yeah. definition greater than 0.3% of the dry weight of the plant is, uh, contains THC. Well, that's marijuana and less than or equal to 0.3% uh, of the dry weight of the plant is hemp. So we got a hemp product that's now uh, congressionally defined as agricultural commodity um, and all its components. And we still have in the face of all of this overwhelming peer-reviewed data, unbelievably overwhelming and chronic pain management in the face of all these opioid deaths, still cannabis in, in with greater than 0.3% THC is a schedule one drug by definition, yeah. no medical purpose. This is yeah. shocking. Cannabis helps people get off of alcohol and opiates. We see an 80% reduction in opiate use uh, with using phytocannabinoids in appropriate therapeutic endpoints. Um, it, 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 I think it's criminal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what we, there are many reasons behind that, as we know. But, you know, there is hope. Uh, we've come a long way. Uh, I think you're right about California, and it is promoting the, well, they did the black Newsom, market. Newsom did a remarkably good thing, one of the few things that he's done. <laughs> and that was <clears throat> he made sure that CBD now isn't an adulterant in food products, pet products, and anything else we want to stick it in. They, they're still wanting their, you know, their grubby hands on tax dollars. And so you can't put hemp-based CBD products in um, the dispensary channel. And really, Troki, once we went to recreation, um, the dispensary channel became not the place for medicinally focused products. And so we're still in that challenging trying yeah. to change that paradigm. I just don't think it should be in dispensaries anyway. I think dispensaries are something that's going to be an ancient relic. I believe that we should have pharmacies that are providing there you, you go, like kinetic, you know, kinetic. Let's exactly. See. That's a that's a that's that's a phytonutrient. It's a drug it's treating disease states don't we need a pharmacist involved there that's what brazil is doing right now 21 year old bud tender that is uh giving medical advice that doesn't have a clue what's going on i'll tell you some of those some of that staff i'll tell you 
is very bright and they have helped a lot of patients. Um, there's a lot of good people in a dispensary and it's not just getting high. So um, yeah, I'm not trying to vilify the dispensary market, but uh, clearly, you know, it's not an ideal place for um, medical management of chronic medical conditions. Yeah, completely agree. All right, so let me jump into the questions uh, sure. uh, right now, but really, really difficult. So get ready for this. Uh, Ken, oh my I, know God. You're, I know you're a smart guy, but it could be challenging for you. So. <laughs> All right, please describe your first experience with cannabis. Uh, I still remember it vividly. <laughs> I don't entirely remember it because I think I was sort of blacked out. Um, but I, I smoked a joint with some friends, I believe in 10th grade. And um, went over to a friend's house after smoking the joint. And I socially engaged with the parents of that friend that they, my friends had never seen me do ever before. I don't remember what I said <laughs> and did, but they told me. So that was my first experience with, with cannabis. Would you consider that a positive experience? It made you want to do it again, right? <laughs> I wasn't a big cannabis guy. I'm really sensitive to THC. Today, five milligrams of THC will get me high in the neutral form. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to do your 23andMe, run it into the end of DNA test, and I'll be yeah. happy to go over your results. Awesome. I'm curious. Yeah, for sure. I expect you to do that for years now, Len. <laughs> I never sent you a well, now it's official. I'm putting on record that I'm going to get you a code when we are awesome, done with this and we'll awesome. get it done 100%. I got my word. Um, so I'm a big music guy. So uh, Kimberly is a big music person as well. Uh, curious, do you remember what the first concert you attended? Yes. That was in 10th grade. Uh, After you smoked your first joint. I'm just kidding. I don't think I consumed any any cannabis um, on that trip. Uh, we were dropped off by my parents, and I was with this really beautiful uh, Mexican gal, of which my brother and his friends all hit on the whole evening. I was, if you can believe it, I was really not. I was an athlete. I was a an elite motocross rider. Uh, I, at 16, I had an opportunity to um, have a contract with Kawasaki. Steve wow. Bird was my mentor, hmm. um, someone that won many times on a DKW. He had a Kawasaki dealership in Montebello. Hmm. Um, so in back in 68, when you had a Preston Petty fender and a Bassani pipe and everything else, you had to fabricate yourself. You know, that's, that's how we used to make stuff. I still remember spanking John, uh, John DeSoto and Brad Lackey, both uh, riders for Kawasaki at that time at Saddleback. I just rode past them on my personally built uh, 125 reed valve kawasaki that was putting out 
32 horsepower at the rear tire. Wow. That was unheard of back then. Yeah. And that concert was that you attended? Oh, concert, yes. So, uh, so yes, was it the forum? Was, yeah, the forum, I think. Was it yes? Was it the band? Yes. Okay, got it. (laughs) Yes. I've seen them before. Uh, do you, what was the last concert you attended? I'm just curious. Well, I have no short-term memory right now, so um, what was I will leave it be. Do you remember the first album you bought? No. Okay. Well, we'll move. I, on. Look, you got to realize I was raised in a family of musicians. My hmm. grandfather, my mother. My sister, my wife, my mother's sister, Jackie, um, they all sang. Uh, I was, I I still remember Jackie telling me, okay, Kent, you're nine years old. Let's see if you can sing. She sat down at the piano and started going through the octaves. I had one octave. And And she couldn't believe someone from that gene pool had no voice, and mm. I've never sung, you know, uh, since then. But I, you know, I from fifth grade through high school until I was able to stop playing because my parents forced me to. Mm. I didn't get to race motorcycles, and I, I did get to participate in sports. I was a really fast runner. Um, I played you know, concert stage. And I actually got to record a band with Doc Severinsen. Doc Severinsen came to our high school and we recorded an album with our stage band with Barry Ulrich. He was our music director. And, uh, and um, I played the uh, bass, electric bass in the stage band, uh, baritone alto and French horn and marching and, um, French horn in concert. Always first chair. Very cool. Um, What has cannabis meant in your life? Well, I've been able to help so many thousands of people. Thousands of people get just like I did in compounding pharmacy to be able to realize treatment solutions they weren't able to realize before. So, you know, that, that's one of the things that keeps me drive driven is, is problem solving and, and getting that feedback. That's my reward in life. That's my love that. love that. Um, bonus question. If you remember, and if you don't, I have another one. Uh, please describe, <laughs> please describe what your room looked like growing up. Well organized. So, I mean, what, which, which age? Whichever one you remember that's most. I remember them down to kindergarten. So I have little snippets. You know, I was on, I was on the King Kamehameha float in Oahu uh, when Hawaii became a state. Wow. It's on the front page of the star. Wow. One of the, somewhere around there. Um, you know, I, I spent uh, 
that's where my parents divorced when I was six. Mm-hmm. And we came back and my grandfather was my father figure for my adolescent childhood. He's a guy that was just a matter of fact, you know, guy that was his handshake was his bond. And his word stuck. Unfortunately, the business world isn't like that. Yeah. 99% of people don't honor their word. And I've unfortunately been a healthcare practitioner, actively listening and trusting what people are saying has led me down a lot of bad business decisions. This has not been an easy one for me either. Yeah, it's a difficult one. We've all, uh, you know, have wounds everywhere from the cannabis industry. It's because, you know, I sort of, there's a part of the industry or, you know, you dealt with criminals basically. And now when the switch was turned on that it's quasi-legal, you have these criminal-minded people who are now in legitimate business, but they're still criminal-minded. So you definitely have a lot of people who are doing some shady business dealings. And I a bit on that one, Lynn. All right. There are criminals who came in, but I also feel like there were criminals in suits. Well, I, that was my other 100%. You have a lot more white-collar criminals. than You're that. absolutely right. You, you know how many people, you're right. I, I met so many people that have never even consumed cannabis or any cannabis business with their suits and funds and all this other stuff. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. I take that back. Uh, all right. So final question for you. And I just thought of it now. Uh, and Have you ever heard the song Mr. Crowley by Ozzy Osbourne? Yes. I am. People. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to do it because uh, I'm I'm a fan of Ozzy, so uh, well, I know. Sure. I, yeah. I I listened <laughs> to him from when he started singing through. I mean, I I love all music except you know I like the you know the a little bit of opera, but very little. You know the yeah. great tenors. You know, there's some great songs there, but. But and and I can, I enjoy some country, but I can only tolerate it so long. Yeah. Um, but I I like all music. My dear, where can people find out about you or contact you or Trokey? Like, where would you want to send people to if they wanted to get in contact? Well, we have a great great team today. Um, Daria Shoemaker, Larry Marlowe, our CEO Gavin Chandler. Mm-hmm. Um, Farm to Pharma Inc. is the company. Trokey.com, T-R-O-K-I-E.com is the website. Um, I'm available. Uh, our, we're, we're building this into um, hopefully an international brand, uh, Lord willing. And we've got a great team. I think we've got a great product. It's It's been used and recognized they did a really good job of setting the standard for bringing pharmaceutical skill into the cannabis space and delivering what's on the label if it says 10 milligrams it's 10 milligrams love that well ken thank you so much for your time 
Uh, it's always a pleasure. And uh, we can do on the next one, if you want, we can go over your DNA results and share them with people. If you're open to that. <laughs> Not a problem at all. <laughs> well, I'm pretty much uh, being an open book, you know, it's, it's, it's healing for me because people have to see success from being, you know, from having your profession taken away from you, being thrown in prison for being an addict, having relapses. Relapses is a part of recovery. Right. That's not this, the process that's used by our California Board of Pharmacy. Um, they they want to put you into a criminal pathway, ignore that is a disease state, and then get rid of you. Yeah. But I'm not one to get rid of very easily because I just keep coming back. I love that. Right. Kent, be well, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you. Pleasure meeting you, Kimberly. And thank you, Len. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.